Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we have a jam-packed show for you today, cats and kittens. We're going to have a young woman on who will teach you how to make a terrarium. She's written a book about how to do that with your kids. Great timing during this pandemic when you need to be a teacher half the time as well. We're also going to warn you not to prune anything and explain why. Well, that's a lot to get done, so we better hop to your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Ron, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, thanks, Mike. How are you doing, Ron? Good. It's a sunny day. Good day for flying. I'm watching my butterflies out here, and it's a good day for the monarchs to head down to Mexico. And I know. I don't have to ask you where you live. You live in Pottstown. Pottstown, PA, Montgomery County. Now, Ron, uh, we, we, uh, we try to talk to you every, every year at this time uh, because you are part of Monarch Watch. You tag monarchs. You grow a lot of um, milkweed for them. And you and yes. I are both huge fans of Tithonia, yes, 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 Mexican sunflower for this time of year. So I know you count butterflies. Uh, you you probably do. You, do you do the thing with the chrysalis and, and the cages and raise them? Yeah, I have two drying right now outside here. I hung them up on the, one of the Mexican sunflowers. Okay, boy, and we got to tell people out there if you've never grown the plant called Tithonia. Mexican sunflower. Uh, grow it for yourself as well as the butterflies, right? It's a butterfly magnet and hummingbirds. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I had a hummingbird. The only hummingbird I've seen this year was on uh, my Tithonia just yesterday. And I'm presuming, you know, you don't have to know this, but they might be the most pollen and nectar rich plant that is active at this time of year. Well, I, yeah, the monarchs uh, choose that plant to migrate on. The one I just captured was on Mexican sunflower before it continued its trip to Mexico. So I try to grow about 20 of those guys, and uh, some of mine are like 12 feet tall this year. It's outrageous. Yeah, that's great. You grow them straight in the ground. Straight in the ground. Yeah, mine are all in containers. Okay. So that, that kind of... Uh, so it, it's a monarch magnet. If you want to witness the migration, you have to be careful because the same monarch's not here all day. So right now they're probably staying maybe close to 10 minutes. But on down the road, they're only going to be staying like for 60 seconds right. as we get closer to October. So now, as, as you just mentioned, you capture and tag them. Yes. Uh, you know, which, to, which I think blows my mind because the concept of tagging something that I would think of as so fragile almost seems impossible. But there's people who do it all over the place, right? How many, how many taggers do we have up and down the East Coast? Thousands, really. Um, I know they, make, um, they were making 300,000 tags. Uh, 3M is the company that makes them. It's a round sticker with a code on it that comes from uh, Monarch Watch at the University of Kansas. And, and then you, you record the data and you mail that into them. You have to go on the web to see if your butterfly was recovered, though. So there are people down in Mexico who check the incomings? Uh, what happens, uh, the third week of March, Monarch Watch takes $10,000 in $5 bills down to Mexico. <laughs> Wait a minute, Ron. Is this going to yeah. be suitable for... Uh, <laughs> 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 and, and can I get in on this? And uh, they pay the Mexicans $5 for each tag recovery. Oh, that's nice. Um, there's a lot of volunteers now from, from the United States going down there, too, with them, with the Mexican uh, natives. Oh, so I, like, I, I would do that in March, but I want the five bills, too. Yeah, it's like 10,000 feet up. It's kind of rough terrain the last couple of miles. It's all rocks. Hmm. So that's our Rosario. So, um, and is that because they're safe up there? Would you believe it's like a freezer up there? And we've all, we've just caught on this the last few years. They're actually hibernating. It's cold up there. Hmm. And they even get snow, and that kills them. They're like one on top of each other. The monarchs are touching each other. They're, they're uh, roosting on the fir trees, and they go about three feet out roughly, and they're 
are on top of each other. The ones on the outer edge die. They freeze to death. Huh. Those are the tags. Those are the tags they find. Oh wow! They're, the monarchs are they're dead when they find the tags. So. Oh, so sad. Yeah. Um, from our area right here in the Pottstown area, we've had uh, nine uh, recoveries, which is pretty good. That's great. Now, okay, so here's Ron. Here's Tithonia. Here's a monarch on it. How does Ron get the butterfly safe? Um, they're, I was going to say they're very resilient. The monarch has those black lines on it. It's like a skeleton. Yeah. So they're the strongest butterfly that we have in Pennsylvania. And uh, you really can't really damage them. Uh, I've even knocked them out before. <laughs> what? Uh, like give them a shot? You know. Uh, with the net, uh, you, when they're really migrating, you, you only got a few seconds to get them. Right. So uh, you, you got to get hustle out there. There's about three different ways to use that net. But, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they don't get damaged. And then uh, you can you can even pet them. You can pet a monarch. Um, I do demonstrations showing that. Uh, they have stronger wings than like the swallowtails. Right. If you did that to a swallowtail, uh, the wings would be on the ground. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's it, a, um, so this is this is the best butterfly to tag. It is. It's um, yeah. It's the only one. And then where do you put this little tag? It goes on the uh, back rear rear uh, wing. Uh, there's a one big cell on there where those black lines are. They call it the discal cell. Yeah. And that you try to attach the tag to that, and I always say not too light, not not too hard. It's a big guessing game, but the, the tag is so sticky, uh, you know, it, it's going to stick. And how many tags have you used over your butterfly lifetime? Oh, uh, I've been doing this since 2002, uh, roughly about a hundred a year. Uh, quite. Uh, so you get good at it, like anything else that's repetitive. Uh, you do. It's you can grab the monarch right behind its head. You're not going to hurt it. When people first watch me do it, they really get nervous. I mean, <laughs> uh, it looks like they're going to cry or something. No, it's relax, relax. I'm going to have you pet this monarch in a minute. <laughs> and then the feet are so strong to pull a hair off your arm. I mean, uh, they're, they're really a nice butterfly to work with. They're easy to raise, too. Huh. Yeah, they're the know, easiest one there is. I know a lot of people who... Uh, you know, collect the eggs or the chrysalis and uh, raise them inside little cages. Speaking of eggs, would you believe Monarch was still laying eggs the last two days? It's getting late. Yeah. And that puts the season all the way into November. I was saying maybe November 7th, but I'm thinking maybe middle November now. It's going to be a long butterfly season. Huh. So what's, getting longer every year. What's the progression time from egg to chrysalis to live it's butterfly? A, it, it's almost a month. But that's still pretty quick. Yeah, that's quick. But uh, if you have them inside in the house where it's warm all, all day, you might be able to do it in 25 days. But otherwise, it's closer to 30. Huh. Okay. So, and uh, you don't overwinter them in the house. They have to be released, right? They have to be. Yeah, they won't make it. Hmm. And yeah, yeah I, I've often wondered, well, why can't we do that? Mm-hmm. So the other butterflies spend the winter in the chrysalis. And these monarchs, they overwinter as an adult butterfly for seven months. At the top of a freezing mountain in Mexico. That's crazy. It really is. It's amazing. Um, Now, real quick, I've seen a tremendous number of swallowtails this year. Um, Yes, swallowtails are up. Monarchs are doing very good for three years in a row. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just had a couple variegated fritillaries this morning. Right. I've had pipe vine uh, eggs on the Dutchman's pipe vine. Now I got another batch. So that's a swallowtail, a pipe vine right. swallowtail. Swallowtails are having a great year. Yeah, and they're so beautiful. They are. They're, oh, they're pretty. All yeah. right. Uh, Ron in Pottstown, um, thank you so much for checking in. Um, I, I presume you're going to send us photos that we're going to put up as we're uh, having this chat. All right. And uh, keep up the good work, man. Hey, thanks. One other little thing that sure. I think is really interesting. Last year, we had 1,500 monarchs in an urban butterfly habitat, my habitat here in Potsdam. 1,500 monarchs migrated through here. That's Incredible. A, that's amazing, because as you've pointed out to me in the past, you don't have a lot of land. You're in the middle of a, a yeah. you know, a, not a big town, not a small town either. Potsdam. 22,000. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, it just and shows I, what you can do if you have the right plants around. Yeah, and uh, the biggest day last year, 
300 monarchs on October 1st. Ah. All right. I've taken up uh, all the phone time here. Ah, but that's fine. We could talk to all you right. forever. Thank you so much, Ron, and thank you for the important work you're doing. You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too, sir. So long. Bye-bye. Robert, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Good morning, Mike. How are you, Robert? Doing okay. Liking this weather. Okay, good. Where do you like the weather? Bethesda, Maryland. Oh, okay. It was a beautiful day in Pennsylvania yesterday, and I expect Bethesda uh, was very nice as well. One of those early fall days that reminds you of, of how nice weather can be sometimes. Finally, yes. Yeah. All right. What can we do for you, sir? I began pruning my boxwood, which has done well over the years, mm -hmm. was very green this summer, mm -hmm. and started, uh, I guess, a little late in, in um, August 20th or that week. And the first one, um, maybe even the 15th, seems to be okay. The other two seem to uh, suffer a little and, and get dry and... Um, lost their leaves, turned brown, lost their leaves. I may not have finished pruning them until September 2nd or 4th. Now, and what, I was wondering, what go made, ahead. What made you want to prune them in the late summer to begin with? I guess I was doing um, some of my 16 azaleas and uh, rhododendron oh, and no. didn't get around to them. Oh, oh you I mean... I did those in July. Yeah. no. No, that's wrong. Um, you should prune spring bloomers like azalea and rhododendron as soon as they're done blooming um, because they then, after that, they then begin to set their buds for the next year. By July, they're, they're fully budded up, and any pruning you do will diminish uh, the show. It's also starting to get hot out, and, you know, every pruning cut leaks moisture. So on those really hot and dry stretches we had, and that was very stressful to them. And plants like boxwood, um, they should be pruned in the spring just about any time. And I'm presuming that you don't like the little shoots that come up after that. Yes? No? Maybe? Yeah. Um, just trying to keep their shape and keep them healthy. So the secret to that, is you do all your shaping pruning in the spring. Um, try not to remove too much, but then keep a pair of pruners right by the front door. And once a week, this is for the boxwood, you can go out there and just trim maybe three, four, six inches off any little shoots. This is how they do those amazing topiaries at like Disney World and everything. Um, anytime you try a massive pruning job in the summer or the fall, you really risk plant, not only plant injury, but plant death. So the way to keep these kind of shrubs is a little bit of pruning once a week. It's a great reason to get up early in the morning, even if it's going to be a hot day, go out there. You can really, I, I have a guy who lives in my neighborhood who does this on a mammoth hedge. I mean, it just goes on forever. But people stop in the street to look at this thing. And he's just out there. He's really enjoying it. But it's like, it's like the guys who get a haircut once a week, right? You don't really okay. need it, but you look so good. Not, not of course, that okay. I would know, you know. So, okay, I agree. So uh, do you think you really killed them? Um, like you suggested, uh Previously, I'm leaving them alone. I'm not going to worry about their shape now and uh, Good. get back, you know, not do any more now here in September, but wait till next winter, spring, and, and look at them again. Good, good. And if you find that um, along the row there's one section that has turned brown and dead, don't be afraid to cut that out and then train the branches of the boxwoods on both sides to slowly fill in that spot. Okay. That's cheating. Yeah. 
but cheaters always win. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Robert? Thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. Good luck to you, sir. Okay, bye, Mike. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and reveal that you do not have to spend six hours a day protecting your plants in the hopes of getting one more ripe tomato. Be done with summer fruits and replace those sad-looking solanaceous suckers with garlic, pansies, and the other plants of fall. But don't go beating up your brandywines just yet, because we'll be right back with tiny yet titanic terrariums and a plea to put down those pruners. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, a warning to put those pruners away for several months before you take them outside again. Plus more of your fabulous phone calls. But now, a very special segment. We're going to learn how to make a terrarium. All right, it is time for us to visit with our special guest, Patricia Buzo, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who joins us via Zoom um, from Minnesota. Uh, Patricia has just written a book. Actually, she probably wrote it a long time ago, but it came out today, uh, the day of our interview, called A Family Guide to Terrariums, for kids. So we got lots to ask her and let's get right to it. Patricia, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here. Now, um, I got a million questions, but you and I spoke earlier this week and I was surprised because most of the time when a book like this comes out, it's a garden writer choosing a new topic to, to get another book out there. But you actually went the other way. You were making and selling terrariums, and people said, hey, you should write a book about this. Yes, exactly. Um, it was kind of exciting for me because I had been thinking about it for some time, doing a, a book, but um, just hadn't gotten around to it because I, I didn't really know what to do. And... Um, Another author had kind of dropped my name <laughs> to um, some publishers, and we got to talking, and that's how we got this book rolling. So it actually happened pretty quickly from the time that we first started talking about it to the time that I had to have it completed. There was only a few months in there. Well, it, it's obvious that anybody would want to produce this quickly, because it looks to me it, like it is the perfect activity to do with your children uh, during this pandemic when a lot of parents have become absentee teachers and are struggling for content. And this seems like a great way to learn about nature, learn some hand-eye coordination, and, and just have fun, which is what you're going for when you're schooling at home. Yes, exactly. It really is perfect timing because um, parents are looking for activities to do. Um, I can't imagine, my daughter's grown now, she's 19, but I can't imagine having gone through this with her when she was little. So I really <laughs> kind of feel for the parents that have to try to come up with activities and they're not teachers. So yes, this book is perfect for that. There's 15 um, projects to do. And not only that, but it talks about 
um, everything you need to know to be successful at the projects. Now, I am used to seeing in incredibly complex terrariums at the Philadelphia Flower Show. They have a category where individual people enter the plants they've grown at home. And I think the category is designed to talk people out of ever trying to grow their own plants at home, because everything is just so perfect and amazing. And there's little <laughs> replications of the famous glass houses of, of Europe, of London, and the Netherlands. And they just look, you know, beautiful. Um, but yours, I'm guessing, is more down to earth and more stuff that's around the house? Yes. Um, well, it's not going to be like super difficult to put together. Um, I did try to choose things that would be easier for a beginner. Um, and that's a beginner of any age, really. And give the tools to, again, be successful. Um, you know, you can always experiment and go farther, but you need to learn the basics first. All those um, beautiful terrariums that you saw, they had to start somewhere. And um, I think that's really what I focus on is just the basics. You know, you're absolutely right, because that's something I forget. When I look at one of these 200-year-old bonsai trees and I think, oh, you know, I forget that the person who did this killed 300 trees. And when I look at these terrariums, <laughs> uh, you know, it has to be, didn't they? They started in a jelly jar or a mayonnaise jar or something like that. <laughs> yes. And I mean, mine aren't quite that basic. Um, you want it to look nice. You want it to be something that you can set out and be proud of. Um, so... I go for design as well. It's not just simple, simple. Um, definitely things that somebody who is beginning can accomplish and be successful at. My concept of a terrarium, and tell me if this is true or not, is it should be a self-sustaining system with a closed top that can be removed, of course, but the idea is the moisture you put in when you start will rise up to the top, come back down is kind of like rain, and it is a, a perpetual motion machine if you do it right. Exactly. You get what so many people don't get. <laughs> so um, it's exactly what you said. Um, most terrariums and traditionally terrariums should have a lid, and it does recycle the water um, just like it would in, in nature. Um, it's just a constant cycle. That's a self-sustaining ecosystem, like mini ecosystem. Um, but because terrariums became popular as a way to decorate, there's also open terrariums. And for those terrariums, you can use different types of plants, like especially um, cactus, let's say, or something like that, that wouldn't do so well in a closed terrarium. So it's still called terrarium, but it probably isn't in the truest sense of the word. But I've got all kinds of, of terrariums in the book. So whatever people um, prefer, you know, they they can find something to do. The history of terrariums is actually kind of interesting. Um, and the reason is because it was an accident. It was an accidental discovery. So um, back in the 1800s, a man named Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward accidentally discovered a terrarium in that he kind of had an interest. He had an interest in gardening and an interest in insects of all things. And he had put a little chrysalis of probably a butterfly or something inside of a glass case. And he had some soil or something at the bottom and he wanted to wait and see, um, you know, when it hatched. Well, um, I don't know if the bug ever hatched or not, but what did happen was there was a spore of a fern inside the soil and it ended up germinating and growing. He um, had actually tried growing, I think ferns in particular, like in his garden, very unsuccessfully. And so when he saw that, he's like, you know, this is the greatest thing ever. I mean, this works. So 
he wrote about it and they ended up being, they were called Wardian cases back then instead of terrariums. And that was after his last name, Ward. And um, they use these Wardian cases actually to ship plants from one continent to another because they would last. I mean, these journeys were like, you know, weeks or months long and normally plants just wouldn't make it. Well, it became the way to ship these plants in these glass cases and keep them alive. Well, that's a great story. And gardening is full of accidents that um, have given us the best plants and ideas we've ever had. All right, so I think it's go time. Are you gonna use that fish bowl that's in front of you? Yes, so I have this here. I've already put the um, soil inside, you can see. So basically what I do, I put the soil in and just pat it down so that it's flat. And the next step that um, I do after I put the soil in is the hardscape. So I have some rocks here mm-hmm. um, and I'm just gonna place those kind of randomly. What's the soil? What's the content of the soil? So what I use for moss terrariums is um, called coco core. It's oh, actually sure. ground up coconut shells. It's environmentally friendly compared to say peat moss, which isn't horrible. It's just, it's more friendly if you want to be that, <laughs> be environmentally friendly, which is a good thing. It doesn't have many nutrients and that's actually perfect for moss. Um, moss can burn if it has, let's say a lot of fertilizers or something. The reason I start with the hardscape is because I kind of get an idea of where I want everything that way and I can plant around it. So you see that didn't take long. I just place the rocks randomly inside. And the next thing that I'm gonna do is use a taller growing moss. It is called broom moss. It's really like bushy and great for the background. So I'm just gonna place this on top of the soil. Where do you get your moss? Do you buy it? Do you collect it? You can do either. I, because I have a business and I need a lot, you know, large quantities of it, I buy it. But you can go out moss collecting. It's actually a lot of fun. Um, For specific kinds that I found that have worked better in terrariums, like the ones I'm using here, it depends where you live, but it might be easier just to buy it. What I was going to say about this, the moss in particular, which is going to be different than um, other plants, is that it doesn't have a root system. So that's kind of why I'm just setting it on top of the soil, because I don't really need to plant it in the traditional sense of the word. And that makes it really easy to use. We are big moss fans here on the show. And when people have a lot of trees and dampness (laughs) and stuff like that, I'm always trying to get them to grow a moss lawn. Well, I I live in a um, townhome, so I don't really even have a yard, barely. But I've always wanted to do something like that or throw it on like a retaining wall or something like that. Just gorgeous. But yeah, I have to live vicariously through (laughs) pictures on the Internet, I guess. Well, no, you don't. You have succeeded in bringing it inside. I mean, you got 20 of these things around. You've got a nice little indoor (laughs) garden and I can see you've got tropical plants behind you and mother-in-law's tongue and everything like that. So, you know, not all (laughs) of us can have outdoor space, but all of us can have living, growing green things in our house. Well, exactly, and that's why I do it. I mean, so far what we have here is just um, simple. I've placed the rocks. Now I did the background moss. with the, it, It's the taller growing moss, and that goes in the background. And then I've got these really cute little cushions, um, and this is called cushion moss. They look kind of like little green pillows, and I use these for the foreground. So I just kind of am going to also just set it on top of the the soil and place it in and around the rocks that I've used here. So that's where the fairies that will inhabit this terrarium will put their little heads down when they go to sleep, right? They'll sleep on the pillow moss. Exactly. This is my favorite type because of the way that it grows um, in these little mounds. I mean, it's, I mean, what could be cuter, seriously? So I'm just pushing these down. And then here at the front, I'm leaving this space open because I'm gonna make um, just like a little pathway 
with um, sand. I was looking for it. So I'm just gonna scoop some sand in here, kind of push it around. So, so far, really easy. I mean, what have we done? We've set a few rocks inside, we've set a few types of moss inside and poured some sand at the front. But you can see that it's already starting to look like a little miniature landscape, really. And what I would do from here is um, just place some smaller stones. I have a tweezers, or not really tweezers, tongs long tongs and I use that to get right into the specific little crevices and areas that I want with these smaller stones and you can see just that the the landscape is coming together really simple so I would continue and just kind of fill in little areas that um you know little cracks that I feel like you know kind of need this and um when this is done there's some smaller stones that I can put in there to just add to the depth. So you're you're going with large to small and try to have odd numbers. So like, I don't usually like to plant things like super even, everything is even, you know, you have this big on this side and this big on that side. Um, I like to go with uneven numbers and like a natural look, you're not going to find um, everything so even and perfect in nature. And that's what I try to go for in the terrariums as well. One plant that's very good for terrariums and very colorful is called Fitonia. You could take little cuttings of that and place them in different areas um, in some of these open areas. Um, and it really gives it like that burst of color that if some people um, are looking for that. Now, how do we do the watering? Okay, so with water, I use a spray bottle, and this is filled with distilled water. The reason that I use distilled versus tap water, um, there's two reasons for that. First of all, moss, again, is kind of sensitive to chemicals and different things. It'll tend to turn brown, and nobody wants a brown terrarium. And the other reason is that when you have glass everywhere, you don't really want those hard water stains. And so um, distilled water doesn't create those. Really simple. About that much. And you get a lid. Put it on. Now you shouldn't need to water this again for at least a month or two. Um, it depends on the container. If the container has a tight fitting lid, it's going to be a lot longer before you need to add any water. If it's the type of lid that might let a little bit out um, through evaporation, then you're going to water it a little bit more often. But it's really simple and that's it. Just place it in a bright, bright location in your house not in direct sunlight, and, and you're good. That's it. Well, that's fabulous. And I presume that if you're watering it exactly right, you're going to get condensation on the lid that's going to drop back down and water the plants naturally. Exactly. A lot of people actually are um, concerned about the condensation, and they contact me. And, and, and I try to explain it's actually a good thing. Depending on the time of day, you'll, you'll have more condensation than other times you and it also has a little bit to do with temperature in your home versus temperature inside but um yeah there's nothing wrong with wiping it away a little bit so that you can see what what you created well thank you so much uh for your time today the book's timing could not be better to help parents who are struggling to provide a good curriculum especially one grounded in nature so congratulations on making that timing work for you uh, patricia buzo has been our guest b-u-z-o she is the authoress of a family guide to terrariums for kids and it is just out right now uh so there's your study guide for all your nature classes this uh this winter and you know you get to garden in winter so there's a plus there too thank you so much oh patricia thank you for being on you bet your garden it's been a real pleasure well it's time for me to take a little break and remind those of you who love your peppers that now is the time to start potting up your pepper plants in anticipation of bringing them indoors for the winter because peppers hot and sweet are perennial if protected from frost. We'll have lots more details on next week's show. 
So don't go potting up your poblanos just yet because we'll be right back with important information about fall pruning and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the explanation of why the best thing you can do for your plants is to put away your pruners right now. Before that, though, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Lisa, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Well, thank you, Lisa. How you doing? Hanging in there. <laughs> Just same as all the rest of us, <laughs> That's huh? That's right. All right. And where is Lisa hanging? Ypsilanti, Michigan. Oh, what a great name. Uh, now, it... it I, I've heard of this before. It's known for something, right? Um, it was part of the Underground Railroad in getting slaves um, up to Canada. Oh, that's amazing. What a, what a great story. What, yeah. a, what a terrible era. But, you know, the fact that there were people helping makes it a little bit better. Absolutely. All right. What can we do for Lisa in Michigan? Well, I have been binging your show, I think, like many people since COVID uh, started. Um, and I know your opinion about peach trees, but I'm going to do it. Okay. I'm going to plant one. Um, and I know your opinions about not um, watering too close to the trunk, no volcano mulching, don't put compost in the bottom of the hole. So I'm looking for your advice on what to do to have the healthiest peach tree we can when we plant next year. Okay. Have you decided where you're going to obtain your baby tree? Um, not yet, but I have decided what type of peach tree. We're thinking the Alberta. Okay, because you're up so close to Canada? Right. And um, what about disease resistance? Um, the Alberta is disease resistant as peach trees go based on the um, research that I've done. Um, but I can probably be persuaded to look at another variety. Well, have you checked the Michigan Extension uh, website? No. Uh, the Michigan Extension website will have varieties listed that uh, they consider best for the area, and it may even go, uh, you know, because Michigan's a pretty big state, it may even go into counties or different parts of Michigan. So before you make a choice, I would look at that. Okay. Um, of, of course, you want the maximum amount of disease resistance. I don't know if anybody claims to be resistant to brown rot, but if they do, I, I'd pay a lot of attention to that. More importantly, where you are, I would recommend a very late blooming peach tree. Okay. Peach trees in general tend to uh, flower very early in the season. And it would not be unusual in your location for um, the flowers to be blasted by frost. Mm -hmm. But there's also a great range of when different varieties put out their flowers. So I would look for disease resistance, but I would also consider um, late flowering a real attribute that you want to look for. Okay. Is there anything else that we should be aware of in taking care of the tree that we do choose? Oh, yeah. So you want to plant it in one of the highest spots on your landscape. You don't want it to be down low uh, in an area where frost collects. You want okay. it to be up as high as possible. And if possible, in a protected area, like inside a walled garden or something like that. Okay. If you are not tremendously short of space, I would get two trees of different varieties, but that pollinate at the same time. Oh. 
You don't need them, but you will get much better harvests. And okay. Much How close should those be planted? Well, it depends. Now we're going to get down to are you going to get a dwarf, semi-dwarf, standard? Um, I was probably leaning towards semi-dwarf. Semi-dwarf, you would want to have them 12 feet apart because they, they get pretty big, but you can control the height by pruning. Okay. So you already know that when you plant it, dig a wide hole, not a deep one. Mm -hmm. um, don't improve the soil in the hole. And then the only mulch on top, which is now you're improving the soil on top, would be mm -hmm. a mulch of compost. And then um, I would also have handy um, surround, the clay spray okay. that is used for protection of fruit trees. It's totally non-toxic, and it can often uh, protect a tree from insect invasion and from things like brown rot. Super. So when your tree um, leafs out in the spring, as soon as the flowers have faded, I, I hate to prune before the flowers are gone because they're just so gorgeous. Yeah. And if you have my luck with peaches, it's all you're going to get. So you <laughs> enjoy the flowers. And honestly, uh, pruning when the flowers are in full bloom, bring your prunings inside. Put them in a vase in every room of the house. I mean, okay. it will be astonishing. So you want to then prune to make sure the center of the tree is open. And uh, anything that's damaged or, you know, dead or anything like that, then the little peaches are going to start to form. Okay. When they get to be about the size of a marble, this is the hard part. You have to go over the tree and take off at least half, preferably three quarters wow. of the little baby peaches. I know it's hard to do, but if you <laughs> leave them all on, they're going to get twice that size and fall off. Okay. So for best production, and I, I think in professional orchards, they actually have machines that shake them off or something. Okay. So just pick off at least half to two-thirds, you know, obviously, especially the ones that are close to each other. And then it's your choice whether to spray preventively with the surround clay spray, but I would recommend it. Okay. So when it comes to mulch, um, we have a very, very established black walnut tree um, in the backyard in the corner where it won't interfere directly with the peaches. But are those leaves okay to use as mulch? You, we, but you have a lot of other trees. No. No, you only have that? Yeah. No, it is not all right. Okay. The allopathic uh, action of the black walnut is not to be toyed with. Okay, so, we do have other trees in the front yard, just no, not near where the peach trees are going. Well, you know, get yourself an electric leaf blower with a vacuum attachment and go out and, you know, shred a bunch of leaves every day during mm -hmm. the leaf fall. And then the, sh the leaves are shredded, so then you can just put them around the base of the tree if you want to. Okay, or, just or, keep the black walnut leaves away from it. Yeah, if, if they're a small component... That's one thing, but black walnut leaves alone, you don't want to mess with. Okay. And then the final thing is if you do see brown rot on a single peach, get mm -hmm. it off there right away. Go okay. out with a plastic bag over your hand, put the plastic bag over the bad peach, pull it off, seal it off, twist, tie it, and throw it in the trash. Um, okay. Once the first one shows up, it doesn't mean anything's wrong. But if you leave it on the tree, it'll spread like wildfire. Super. Well, thank you very much for the information. And I understand the desire to grow peaches. Believe yeah. me. I mean, <laughs> it's like they're like ambrosia. Yeah. They've been fantastic this season, too. So we've been getting them from the farmer's market. And I've decided that to save money and give myself something more to do in case this continues, um, mm -hmm. you know have something to entertain myself. Okay, good. Thank you. All right, you take care. All right, it is time for the question of the week, which we're calling the perils of pruning. Tom in Berwyn, PA, which he explains used to be called Dales Ford, or to be more precise, Dales Ford Hills, which the development was called in 1955, quote, when we moved in. He writes, I find myself in a quandary, which is not to be confused with a Hupmobile. 
I'll take care of the jokes here, Tom. No matter how badly I do, that's still my purview. I pruned my azaleas right after they finished flowering this spring, he writes, but now they have grown to the point that they need pruning again. Why? They offend my aesthetics. More importantly, they're blocking my windows. I know that if I prune them now, I will lose the new buds they have set or are setting. What should I do? Well, there are two issues here. One, as Tom correctly notes, is the loss of flowers when you prune spring bloomers, like azaleas and rhododendrons in the fall or even late summer. The buds that will produce next year's blooms on my azaleas and rhododendrons, for instance, have been clearly visible for a month now. The other issue is the compulsion to fuss with everything in the fall. After all, the tomatoes have slowed down. The zucchini is hopefully dead. The weather is wonderful for outdoor chores. And there we are, pruners in hand on a beautiful day in the 70s. The temperature, not the decade. With low humidity and no other obvious chores except these plants that we have suddenly noticed have become overgrown in the past few hours. Why not? What's the harm? And that brings us to issue number two. Pruning stimulates growth. The majority of European gardeners seem to know this, as many of them selectively prune to make small plants bigger. But we on the other side of the pond seem to think that pruning shows plants that we mean business. We're the boss. And after this savage attack by the spring-heeled jacks of horticulture, they'll bow to our whims and behave themselves by staying at their after-pruning height forever, which is possible because it might make them dead. Again, pruning stimulates growth. Nights in the suburbs of the Philadelphia area are already dipping into the low 40s. That's the temperature, not the decade. And our plants are slowly tucking themselves into dormancy. But they aren't quite dormant yet. And so when, say it with me, kids, pruning stimulates growth at this time of year, really cold weather may be only a week or two away. And when the stimulated growth, which like me is full of fresh sap, suddenly plunges into one of those late fall, early winter Arctic troughs, said sap freezes hard, which can burst branches open, which would be bad. This ill-advised pruning has also taken away much of the energy that would have sustained the plant over winter, and it has removed the outskirts of the plant, which had they been there, would have taken the brunt of an ice storm or other winter injury. That's three strikes, so don't argue with the ump. Toss your helmet or even look at the person who has merely verified your mistakes. Just get back in the dugout and stop sulking. Where does this leave Tom, who may wish to trade plant death for the chance to look outside during the brief intervals of daylight in winter? And as the great ball player Rogers Hornsby once noted, he does during the offseason, look out the window and dream of spring. To do that, you need to see out the window. So here's the deal. When the weather is freezing cold and no warm-up is predicted for at least several days, go out and remove the minimum amount of plant that will allow you to see outside. Do not do this during a warm spell or what we warned about back in strike two will be even worse. The best time for pruning is the time you least want to do it, in the dead, 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 dead cold of winter freezing cold for several days beforehand, with several days of freezing cold afterwards. The plants will not be stimulated, neither will much else at this time of year, and you will accept the loss of flowers if the window washers were spring bloomers. But they probably won't be dead, and that's a plush. 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 A plush plus. Anyway, it's a plus. Fast forward to next year. Hey, can we please do that now? I still have trouble understanding why I wear a mask in the liquor store and still have to pay for my wine. But I regress. That's when you digress and then find your way back home. Prune spring bloomers when you know you should, which is right after they finish blooming. Bonus, this is also when spring bloomers would like to be fed either a couple inches of compost or an organic fertilizer designed for that type of plant or both. If it is both, put down the granular fertilizer first, followed by a mulch of compost. 
When you prune, do not remove more than one third of the plant. A week or so later, go back and gently prune for shape and such. Do the same a week after that, but stop pruning a month to six weeks after the first round. If you stop soon enough, it won't affect the bud set, and you will have done everything you can to control the height of the plant. Short of killing it, of course. Well, that sure was some good information about putting away those pruners, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website, where you can read it over at your leisure or your leisure. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to trample my terrarium if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Include your location or we'll, we'll, well, we will. So there. You'll find all of this contact information, the answers to all your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, and our podcast. Oh, and audio and video of old shows, and our podcast, too, and our podcast. It's all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org, including our podcast. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show, and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Television and Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when seawater shorted out Aquaman's Justice League signal device, and when Mike showed up to the battle, he was given a mask, a cape, and a hollow belt buckle, and told to go home. Our musical director is Ken Queter. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our website wonder is Nicole Harrell. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried, well, he's not really our director. Jake is directing the show. But he's out there somewhere, ladies and gentlemen, and he is Javier Diaz. The usual gang of idiots includes Eric Werner, John Flynn, Jacob Morris, Zach Attack, and many others. Our fearless leader and CEO, Tim Fallon, has gone the distance in keeping COVID-19 out of our building. Keeping me out, he hasn't done so well. But then again, I haven't seen anybody named COVID inside yet. Oh, well. Hey, and thanks for the parking spot, Tim. I'm your rapscallion, Mike McGrath, and I think that means I have to speak in rhyme while being a tiny green onion. Even if that isn't true, I'll see you again next week.